Welcome to the Report Card with Matt Malthus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The 2020 election is finally over. Well, it's mostly over. After several days of uncertainty, Joe Biden was declared the winner of the presidential election. Republicans secured 50 of the 51 seats needed to maintain their Senate majority, with Georgia's two seats still up for grabs, and Democrats held on to the House despite unexpected losses. And at the state level, Republicans managed to flip New Hampshire's House and Senate and the governor's seat in Montana, but not much else has changed. So in light of these results, what's the K-12 education policy forecast? On this episode of The Report Card, I asked two seasoned experts with a wealth of insider experience to weigh in, Tony Bennett and Joanne Weiss. Tony served as Florida's commissioner of education, and before that, Indiana's superintendent of public instruction. He began his career as a high school biology teacher in Indiana. Joanne served as chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan and director of the federal Race to the Top program from 2009 to 2013. Prior to that, she was the COO and a partner at New Schools Venture Fund. Tony, Joanne, thanks for coming on the report card. Great to be with you this morning. Happy to be here. So, Joanne, the election results are in. Biden won the White House. What happens now? I mean, what is the Biden team working on between now and January 20th to get ready to tackle their education agenda? I actually think there's probably, given the forecast that you just laid out there around what's going on legislatively, I think there's probably not going to be a huge legislative agenda other than all of the work that needs to happen around a stimulus. And I know education will be part of that. And we can come back and talk about that. But I don't think there's going to be a huge education agenda, uh, legislative agenda for education. So I think a lot of the work is going to be around regulations. I think there is a lot of work to be done across every agency, not just education, to rebuild the agencies. I think government has really suffered under the last administration, and there's a lot of work to do to get structuring, staffed, highly functioning agencies back together again, and rebuilding the culture, the structures. Hiring is going to be an important, important task for the first couple of years for the for the agency. But on the regulatory side, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of review of the regulations that the uh, Trump administration put in place and what it is that that the Biden administration wants to keep and what they want to roll back, what they want to undo. You brought it up, Joanne, so I want to just jump right in. You know, you talked about a stimulus bill. What, what? Let's talk real short order consequences after the election. I'm wondering how they might affect, you know, what I'm thinking about every day is we've got millions of kids not in school. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big issue hanging out there. Now, because of that, you know, education perhaps played a larger role in this election than it has in past elections because there's these highly politicized debates about whether kids should be learning in person right now and how to do that safely and whether the federal government is going to come out with another sort of CARES package or support package. Tony, what impact, if any, do you think that federal and state elections could have for school reopenings, you know, in the near term? You know, I, I'm, so let, me, let me just start by saying this. You know, I have always been one of those guys that has said what happens at the federal level doesn't have much of an impact at the state. Um, the only the only exception to that was the incredible work that Joanne and Secretary Duncan and Ann Whalen and their teams did during Race to the Top. They definitely motivated states to think differently. I don't see that happening. So I think when you take a look at what's going to happen 
at the federal level, I don't think it's going to make much difference. Uh, you know, like Joanne said, I don't think there's going to be much of a quote unquote uh, education agenda. I, I do think there will be uh, some pretty keen interest on the state elections or from the state perspectives on a how we rebuild assessment and accountability post pandemic. I think there will be an immediate interest on how we handle opening of schools and funding of schools in both this uh, this virtual and hybrid model. And, and I, I think there, that most of the work will be done at the state and local levels as opposed to the federal level. So in general, I agree with you on that, Tony. The one thing that I would say here is that what we were completely missing in government uh, from an education point of view over the last few months was the CDC working in concert with the education department to put out clear actionable guidance for schools about conditions for reopening by grade level based on transmission rates in your community so that there was some consistent guidance. I think this notion that every local superintendent was responsible for themselves uh, to decide when and under what conditions and how to reopen has been hugely, hugely detrimental to the teaching and learning of kids. It put basically what I think felt like life and death decisions on the shoulders of every superintendent in America. And schools got so absorbed with thinking through health and safety, which is not their competency, that they had no time to think about teaching and learning, which has really suffered because teaching and learning looks really different and no one was focused on that. So I think if the federal government could come in with clear guidance, and I'm not talking mandates because it's going to look different based on the transmission rates in every county, but with clear guidance on what to do, with money for PPE to support that and to support COVID testing so that people can open and feel safer in the process of doing it, and then let districts really focus on teaching and learning. And, you know, organizations like CCSSO tried to step into the breach with guidance on teaching and learning during this time. That's stuff that the Fed should have done. They need to get that out there. They need to get out the best ideas and supports to schools so that we can fix this and make sure that we don't lose even more time for our kids. Man, let me jump in here for a minute because the, the only real push, and, and, you know, I always say I have a, a great case study of one because my wife is a public school district superintendent. And interestingly, we have in our community, we are blessed in our county with probably the best state health officer in our state. Um, incredibly commonsensical, proactive, and, and very accessible to school district superintendents. Well, if you take a look at Tina's small community, my wife, she has a wealth of capacity in terms of space in her schools. So while our county may have a fairly high positivity rate as, as put out by both the state and, and some guidance from the feds, she can go on a hybrid model and socially distance probably as well as any school district in our state. So I, I do feel like there, there is a need for local leadership to truly weigh in. While I am not opposed to federal guidance, state guidance, at the end of the day, I really believe that this is the work of great health officers who are truly, you know, focusing on being versed in this issue and superintendents who are trying to make sure they address the safety concerns of their community and kids. But as you said, Joanne, making sure we drive learning, because let, let's be blunt, what happened last spring was not learning 
in the vast majority of our school districts across America. People are, are, are really kidding themselves if they thought kids learned between March and May in, in large part. And I totally agree with you. This is going to be district by district. I am not disputing that 100%. I just want districts to have more support to get tests, to get PPE. Like I want the distribution channels to work. I want the information channels to be consistent and clear so that everybody's not completely making it up for themselves. They're making decisions for themselves. So in this short run, right, we've got an election and then you got a lame duck session and then the election results really kind of hit the pavement, right? So we've been talking about a couple of things, these immediate challenges. And on the one hand, it can be uh, some fiscal support from the feds to help with, you know, PPE and a vast array of other needs that school districts are talking about. The other is this kind of guidance. I'm wondering what's the possibility that we're going to get any of that infilled here in the next couple of months, right? Because right now we are at this place where COVID rates aren't going up. They're going straight up. And the, the challenge and the need for those assistances are, are pretty at a premium, let's say. Are, are we just likely to be stuck in the doldrums here for the next two months? Or do you expect the Biden team to be able to provide some leadership or the, the, the Trump team to try and get some things in order in the short run? Joanne, I'll let you tackle that. You're the federal expert here. No, I mean, I don't know anything that we don't all know from reading the newspaper, which is the transition's not really allowed to begin. And Trump is playing golf and not addressing any of these issues. So that is a super depressing answer to your question, Nat. But I think we have the evidence like staring us in the face. So, Nat, on, on top of that, while I do agree that the federal climate is a bit paralyzing right now, I think it's incumbent upon state leadership to not allow that to filter down into in, the states and, and really get in the way of how we handle educating our children and taking care of our families and children during this time. I mean, I, I obviously that's what's going to happen um, as the default here, but you could imagine a world in which the Congress was able to pass a stimulus package that enabled governors to make different decisions about which sectors to keep open and which sectors to shut down. I mean, we, we talk sometimes about why are we keeping bars open and shutting down schools, but it's a very real economic question that governors are wrestling with. And in the absence of stimulus that helps make whole the people who would otherwise be affected by the shutdown, the governor's hand, I mean, it's a really tough decision for governors and only the feds can come in with some of that kind of support that gives governors more options than they have now. So I think all these things are very interconnected and I think government is just failing us right now during this pandemic and creating a much worse situation than would have had to be the case. So let's take a look at a shift to the top line results from the election, right? There's two special elections in Georgia that are going to determine the balance of the Senate. Most people handicapped that the Republicans will retain a very slight uh, majority, but they could not. So what would you see the difference in the Biden administration's approach if the Democrats had unified government versus the Republicans holding on to the Senate and thereby having a much stronger hand in, in checking Democratic policy moves. I mean, and if there's and if there's not a lot of daylight there, I mean, that that sort of uh, makes a, a pretty large state. I, I mean, I think I, I just think education is down on the list. I don't think it's near the top. I think there's so many issues around 
the election and democracy and politics that actually need some legislative action. And so many issues around climate change and issues around the economy. Like, I just think there's a bunch of things that are so much higher in the list. I would be shocked if education made that list. The only potential thing I see is stuff around higher education and especially all of the student loan issues and predatory institutions of higher education and some of that stuff that's been going on. I guess I could see some of that making its way into um, a legislative agenda, but almost as a rider on stimulus packages and other things, not even necessarily as a package by itself. Tony, what are you thinking? I, I don't just, I, I couldn't agree more, Joy. And I, I mean, I hate to say this as a, you know, you're talking that you're talking to two educational like crazies here. And it breaks my heart to say, education is not going to be at the top of the talking list. Right. And, and that, that bothers me because we are having that conversation that education is down on the priority list after looking at what in, what could end up almost being a year of learning loss for most children across America. And, and to say that education is not on the uh, priority list or down on the priority list is pretty unnerving to me. Yeah, and more than that, that COVID really laid bare horrible inequities in the system that have always been there, but now everybody can see them. And so there is clearly so much work to do and such an agenda that needs to happen. But um, I just don't see it happening, at least legislatively. States are still going to be where the action is and moral leadership, perhaps, coming from the feds. But that's about it. You know, now I, I do think there is one positive aspect of this, and and that is for the folks like me who have beaten the choice drum for many years and, and at, at some professional and personal cost. The pandemic has turned more people toward choice than the education reform community ever thought of doing. As a matter of fact, that you know, if I could have a great candid conversation with some of our most staunch allies in the education choice movement, I would just tell them to be quiet and let the pandemic do the talking. Because we're seeing school districts across America saying kids need choice. We've got to set up a virtual or a hybrid program for our students during the pandemic. Those were not conversations that we used to have. And we're hearing parents. Exactly. We are hearing from parents who now understand, who are watching class come into their living rooms every day and suddenly really have a deep understanding and deep feelings about it and are using their voices to communicate what they want and what they don't want for their kids. I agree with you. It is a huge moment of parent, family, student empowerment that's going on. And I really hope districts play right into that and support that as opposed to snapping back. Let me, let me ask you about how that's actually playing out, right? Because We've had discussions, certainly there's been an ongoing discussion during the Trump administration about private school choice. Betsy DeVos has been pushing hard to expand that without uh, a, a whole lot of traction at the federal level uh, at, at all. And then before that, we've talked about charters for years and, and, and charters are a main sector, but it doesn't seem that the increased appetite for choice and differentiation during the pandemic necessarily flows along those same lines. So sort of two questions here. Is our concept of educational choice not only being pushed, but also substantially altered in the pandemic? And also what happens 
to the the support for charters moving forward in the next administration? I think those are tangentially linked, but I'll throw it out there. I think that our definition of choice is changing and broadening thanks to parents. I don't think parents have ever really understood all these distinctions that we make among the different types of public schools that are out there. I think they're looking for a good school for their kids. And I think that coming into their living room, they're either happy or they're not happy with what they're seeing. And I think they are therefore moving to all kinds of different solutions. I think some will want to stay in either a hybrid or a remote learning mode for a long time because it's working better for their kids. I don't think that's the majority of parents, but I think there's some. And I think that you know the parent pod movement is very close to the micro schooling movement that you know has been going on for a little while and how do those come together and we end up with new sort of micro schools are those micro schools run by districts or they run outside districts i think we could end up with a really wide variety of longer term solutions and whether any of them end up with enough market share to become sort of a sector that sits next to traditional districts, charters, and X will be really interesting to see. You know, I, I do believe based on state policy frameworks, I, I think you will see an interconnection of all of this, this, these things, especially in states that have pretty broad choice opportunities in their state policy framework as they exist today. I, I don't think there's a question about that. I think Joanne's point's exactly right. I think for the first time that I, I can remember in my professional career, parents are truly going to dictate what the market looks like. You know, will it be pods? Will it be virtual? And, and again, I, you know, I say this sounding like I'm picking on some of our brick and mortar traditional public schools, but you know, what they have done to date to address the need is not true virtual instruction. It's just emergency remote learning. In some instances, it's learning by PDFs. So I don't think it's been very effective. And I think parents have seen that. Likewise, in states that have pretty broad private school networks, we're seeing folks, parents basically say to the private schools, we're not paying tuition for that anymore. You know, if this is what our children are going to get in a private school, virtual emergency remote setting, we're not interested. So I think parents and families are going to drive a, a conversation nationally that, you know, has been limited to the ed choice community for many years. And I don't think it'll be an echo chamber for very long. And I think the best thing we can do as education choice advocates is be quiet and not let it become a divisive conversation. We need to invite the public school districts into this conversation. They're taking part in it readily. We need to invite the charter community into this conversation. And bluntly, we need to invite the faith-based private schools into the conversation because they too deliver education. You know, I, I look at many communities across the state where the, the private school community is a huge piece of the educational fabric. In terms of school choice, I think this is an exciting time, but it has nothing to do with anything other than a pandemic being the voice that the ed reform community couldn't muster up for many years. Yeah, I think there's a number of trends that are really worth watching here. So I agree with everything that you just said, Tony. I think that the course choice policies that Louisiana put in place years ago, and, uh, and a few other states I think have subsequently done the same, 
that basically were put in place to allow, you know, rural Louisiana districts that didn't have an AP calculus teacher to do AP calculus online for their kids and offer a course remotely for their kids. Like those kinds of things are gonna be what hybrid learning looks like in the future. If there's some really good teachers around the country who are offering courses that are sanctioned by the state and high schools can just offer those online, kids are gonna be de facto back in hybrid mode where they're going into school for some stuff and they're doing some stuff remotely and everybody is used to this and knows how to do it now. So it's gonna be, I think, much more commonplace. The other thing is, like as Tony said, remote instruction in most places has been horrible. I mean, it's been PDFs or it's been live Zoom classes that look just like your classroom used to look. And we all know from our work that when you do everything online, you need to change it. Like it looks different. You need to make adaptations and make changes. Student engagement looks different. There's different things you can do. There's different ways you know the extent to which kids are engaged. There's different ways that you'd organize kids, ask questions, get homework, check on what kids are doing. It looks different when it's done well. And I think that virtual academies, which tons of states actually have and are crappy, could become really good places where the good online remote people congregate to offer families statewide a great remote learning experience because they're experts in it instead of making the assumption that everybody can just, you know, pick it up and run with it as is. So I think there's a bunch of things that could look really different in the future in interesting ways. So Joanne, I want to go back to the administration's potential moves in the in the short run. And you had said, you know, legislatively, it's just not necessarily a priority, but there's some regulatory moves that we could see relatively quickly. And of course, uh, the Trump administration took regulatory approaches to make changes to the Obama administration's yep. movements. That, that's an administration you were a part of. What do you expect on the regulatory front that might happen faster through executive orders or regulation changes? I think there's probably a couple of areas that, that they'll focus on first. One is higher education. There's a lot of things in higher education that will be reviewed and discussed. So there's a bunch of stuff around student loan forgiveness that has just been backlogged for four years that was actually resolved during the Obama administration and then just not actually dealt with and has been backlogged. I think there'll be a lot of action on that. I think there'll be a review of a lot of the different regs that have been put in place and probably rolling back or adjusting of a number of them in higher ed. The other part of the agency that I think is going to get immediate attention is the Office of Civil Rights. I think the civil rights and equity agenda is going to look very different. And there'll be a lot of work done to try to both restore the capacity of the civil rights part of the agency and look at a lot of the things that were rolled back and try to undo those as quickly as possible. There's a couple that were actually regulated and legislated, and those will take longer. But there's a number of things that could be rolled back pretty quickly. Matt, can I, let me jump in here for just a second, because again, I made reference to this earlier. There, we better be paying attention to assessment and accountability. Yes, thank you. And that's obviously the other one. That's actually the one that's going to come up first, because states are going to be on the doorstep on January 21st asking for waivers. And, and, and you know, I believe we are going to see a dramatic change in what school assessments look like. Yep. And I think we're going to see, as a result of that, dramatic rewrites of state accountability frameworks. I think the if you back up to the fundamental of accountability and knowing you have to have assessment, and I'll say this will be a dirty word and it'll probably just screw everything up the minute I say it, 
I think we're going to end up going back to something we all tried to build in 2009 and 2010, and that's three-year assessments. Because we now have this phenomenon where we have potential significant learning loss, slippage. We've got to figure a way to measure that. We've got to really reinsert the idea of measuring three-year growth. And I think that this is a, a really a, a pretty significant moment in time for us to address and have kind of a, a unification of educational stakeholders around the idea of what assessment looks like. And as opposed to that one simple snapshot in time that's been so widely criticized as high stakes assessment, we may be able to move and, and join, I'll say the, the, the naughty word, we may be able to move to what park was originally supposed to be designed to look like back in 2009, which was a three-year assessment. Um, at the time, we couldn't get it done. Maybe this is the chance for folks who are in the market now to really take the lead and build this and, and not throw it back to state chiefs. And then as a result of that, let the policymakers look at what comes out of that and say, what's accountability look like? And what's the right way to measure transparently how schools perform in this new world order? So I, I do hope that we pay special attention to assessment and accountability, because I think that's that's the cornerstone besides choice that comes out of this whole thing. I agree. Assessments, it's time to relook at how we do those. We've got a lot more capacity than we used to. We still need some more innovation, like it's not immediately obvious how to really make assessments measure what we care about, but we're a lot closer than we were. And it's definitely a time to relook at that question and think about different models. Well, Joanne, you brought up the waivers, right? Uh, as soon as Biden's in office, what's that near-term calculus look like for the, the Biden team? Mm -hmm. You know, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm -hmm. uh, which way are they gonna choose? You know, I I actually have no idea what the answer to this question is. I. I'd put almost even odds on it. Parents uniformly want to waive testing. We, we know that. COVID, learning loss, all the estimates that are out there and everything we keep reading are just completely like models based on stuff that's not really totally parallel to the situation that we're in. If we really want to understand how kids are doing, assessments this spring are the way to learn the answer to that question. And ignorance is not bliss. So I do think there is a real reason. Maybe the assessments are truncated. Maybe they're sampled assessments rather than assessing every single child. But I think we really need information, not for accountability for teachers or schools, but to understand what we need to do to climb the mountain that we have just created for ourselves. Here to figure out the landscape, my question is, you know, We've got a tool, right? We've got annual assessments. We can use it. And they're <laughs> online, by the way. They're all online. Right. But the question is, is that tool actually the best, you know, sort of over under on effort and effectiveness to actually get those assessments back? Uh, I, I don't know how that plays into the question, but I could, I could raise the question on the assessment waiver. It, it just depends what you're looking for. Like if what you're really trying to see is what changed and how we doing, you need comparability. So you've got to have something that gives you that through line from the before moment to the after moment. And so is it the best tool in the world going forward? No, I'm like 100% on the same page as Tony that we need to do some real thinking about what assessment should look like going forward. But is it maybe the tool we've got for the moment that's going to give us the most information? Yeah. 
on the other hand, like if there's a vaccine and we can get kids back in school for real by the late spring, you could maybe do the assessments in some form or fashion without too much problem. If it still looks in you know, May like it looks right now, I, I just have no idea if that's even feasible. So I'd kind of wait a little bit longer. If I was the administration, I'd kick the can down the road just a month or two to see what happens. I'd like to rephrase that a little bit. I don't necessarily disagree with Joanne in terms of kicking the can down the road. I like to rephrase it. And I hope whoever the new secretary is walks into the first CCSSO meeting and says, you know, you guys have complained about two consecutive secretaries of education. Let's see what the hell you have. You come to us with some of your greatest thinking and ideas on how to address this. Let our states be the laboratories of innovation and challenge them and say, you know what, we are going to give you some flexibility, but you know, it, this is not a this is not a situation where we're going to accept, I just throw it out the window or just do this for the sake of simplicity and, and political expediency. Let's truly take this as a moment in time to say that necessity was a mother of invention, and let's push our states to really think through what this will look like as we move out of this pandemic into, you know, a, a new situation completely as we look at assessment and as we look at how we measure the and analyze student learning. And that I think that's exactly right. I think that's a great idea. I, I would do what Tony said. I also think that. Like the reason to do these tests, partly it's to sort of let families know what's going on, but the main reason is to figure out what resource allocation needs to look like going forward. And that's a real big policy question at the state level. And so for states to have the information that they need in order to make the best decisions that they can make for kids and families, that is the question to ask state leaders and have them come back and say, here's the information I need, here's how I can get it, and here's what I'm going to do with it. I think that's I think that's a great idea. So let's get back to the realm of the, the more likely than not scenarios moving forward with the, the Biden education agenda. Let's say Republicans hold on to one or both of the Georgia seats and the, the filibuster stays in place. Okay, so there's some promises and some ideas that were thrown around in the primaries. And I just want to sort of trip through them and figure out, A, how likely they are either in, in outright as promised or in some form or fashion. Uh, you talked about resource allocation. One of the big promises Biden made was he wanted to triple funding for Title I to $45 billion a year. Prospects? No. I agree with Joanne. How about increased funding for IDEA? Any chance uh, for bar bipartisanship on that front? Yeah, there's more chance for bipartisanship always on IDEA. I'm still not sure it's going to rise to the level of ways to spend money given all the other things that are going to com be competing for it. Completely agree. So we're just going back to priorities. It's just not high enough to escalate to the docket. There were questions about teacher pay. Kamala Harris talked quite a bit about increasing teacher pay. Also, at the same time, doubling the number of psychologists, guidance counselors, nurses, social workers, health professionals. Any work on that front you think that's likely to get taken up? All those are going to be state, state decisions. Bingo. It's a state decision, but I want to say this, and you know, I never have to worry about being offered a job by the NEA or AFT. So I, I'll just say this. I don't think this is the environment that the, the teacher union should be lobbying hard for increased teacher pay. I mean, I will tell you the community I live in, and it is a working class community. They saw teachers 
quote unquote, and I don't necessarily agree with this characterization, but I'm going to throw it out there. They saw teachers working from home, staying home, and being paid, made totally whole last spring. And in some instances, they saw teachers on Facebook and Twitter on vacations and being paid. And I don't think the political climate, especially given the economic impact of the pandemic, is really conducive to states, you know, kind of saying, we're going to give teachers large raises in in light of the fact that in many instances, they haven't truly worked full years in the, over the past year. So I'm, I'm not sure it's a great climate for that. And I don't, also don't think it's a great climate financially for most states. Yeah, my how the world has changed since the red for red strikes and the, the raises of, you know, two and two and three years ago. So we've talked a little bit about how education may not be the highest priority, but I, there's something unique here. And that is in the Biden administration, the first lady is a career educator. And that spot can actually come with highlighting uh, a bully pulpit that we haven't had. And to, to be fair, Karen Pence, the current second lady, is also a teacher, but she hasn't brought forth a, a, a lot of visibility to that. I wonder what difference will it make to have an educator as First Lady Jill Biden? I think it will make a difference. I think Jill Biden will use her bully pulpit in support of education. And I think she'll probably be a good friend to the Secretary of Education, whoever that is, and and be an advisor to that person. So I do expect it to have higher visibility from a bully pulpit point of view, for sure. And I also think that equity issues, racial justice issues, are going to be a big part of the Biden administration going forward. And a lot of that, as we know, comes home to roost directly in schools. So I think schools will be an important part of that conversation. Nat, to the to the issue of of you know Mrs. Biden and Mrs. Pence, I you know I think that's a great example of of how kind of lower priority education's been because you know when Mike Pence was our governor and running for governor, you know when he ran for his first term, and I think had he run for his second term, Karen Pence as an educator was front and center, and you know having attended many political dinners where Mike spoke very eloquently about, you know, his wife, the teacher. And, and that did get play when they first went to D.C. But I just think that it was a function of how low a priority education was. And, and I do think it'll be a good signal that maybe education is of increased importance if, if Mrs. Biden is more vocal and more, you know, supportive publicly about education. I think that would be a great signal for us. Yeah. All right. Last question before we go out. We can't talk uh, about the election effects without asking about the Secretary of Education. Betsy DeVos uh, has has not been the most popular Secretary of Education that, that we've ever seen. She's going to be replaced. So uh, a, a joint question here. First of all, what are the main things the next Secretary of Education needs to do and be capable of doing right out of the gate? And who do you think it's going to be? Hey, Tony, you're up. Wow. Um, coming out of the gate, I think it's one, it's organizing a department to be functional for the vision of the, the president and the department. I'm not, I'm not at all criticizing Secretary DeVos. I, I need to say this, Matt. I, I get uh, personally offended when I hear people personally attack Betsy DeVos. Frankly, I've read on Facebook some of my, my friends who are educators locally you know, the day the election seemed to be over saying bye-bye Betsy, you know, 
best regards public school teachers. Well, I don't know what Betsy DeVos ever did to hurt public school teachers. I don't, I, I, I frankly, anyone who knows Miss DeVos knows she is a classy, loving individual who cares deeply about education for children. Now, what I wish would have happened is I wish she would have had the ability to, to go out and challenge what we're doing. And I just don't think that happened the way Secretary Duncan was able to do it under President Obama. So I think number one thing is reestablish the voice of the secretary in the bully pulpit the way Arne Duncan had it when he was secretary for President Obama. I'll tell you one of the most intriguing things that ever happened. And Joanne, you'll remember this. March 2009, CCSSO, the state chiefs are sitting in Washington, D.C. at the annual policy session. Secretary Duncan is scheduled to speak. And oddly enough, lo and behold, coming in right behind him was one President Barack Obama. What a statement that made to state chiefs about how important education was. That the Secretary of Education brought with him the president's first time ever in CCSSO history that we heard from Gene Wilhoyd at the time that that had ever happened. And that was a strong statement about how important education is. So I hope number one issue is we reestablish a strong voice for education. And I, I hope that in establishing that strong voice for education, we challenge states to be better. In regard to who, I, I couldn't begin to guess, you know, put sign me up as the person who wants to nominate Arnie to come back. I think he was excellent at his job, and I think he would he would perform admirably. But I do think there's some names out there. I've heard Alberto Carvalho. I've heard, um, you know, the superintendent of Baltimore. You know, a lot of what we might refer to as reform-minded district superintendents, maybe a, a former governor. But whoever it is, I just hope they have a strong voice. And I hope that their passion for doing things right for kids is able to shine. And the only regret I have is that Betsy DeVos was not allowed to shine in that manner because I know Betsy DeVos and um, I don't think she was ever given a chance to succeed. Joanne? I absolutely agree that whoever it is needs to really champion loud and hard the importance of education as this foundation and cornerstone of building this country, both the democracy and the citizenship role, as well as giving kids the skills they need to secure a future for themselves, both career-wise and, and family-wise. So I think that it is critical to get somebody who is a good spokesperson and can really speak to all the different constituencies out there, all the different families who depend on education to make their children's future bright. Having said that, I have no prediction on the secretary other than to say that usually all the early names we see are not actually the names that the president is considering or the president-elect is considering. So I wouldn't put too much stock in everything at the moment. And uh, I think we'll just see. Fantastic. Tony, Joanne, thanks for coming on the report card. And uh, maybe we'll have you back next year to review, you know, how much of this actually played out the way we thought it would. Yeah, throw our predictions in our faces and see what happens. Indeed. Well, Tony's the only one who predicted a superintendent, even a range of them. So you're protected on that front. Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there were a lot of other ones that we did. There were a lot of other issues we predicted oh, about and might be totally wrong on. So there you go. And that I've made a career out of being wrong. So, I mean, if I got one right, I'd feel pretty good. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you all. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Tony Bennett and Joanne Weiss. I also want to thank the producers. They make this podcast possible. That includes Matt Rice and Olivia Leslie. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. While you're there, take a moment to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Mullins.